Hey there, everyone. This is your host, Michelle Ann Olson, and you are listening to Are You Afraid of the Bark, the podcast that goes bark in the night. Welcome, welcome to this episode 22. Now, I don't know about you, and I don't know about what's happening, where you are, but here in Toronto, and I'm sure that my friends in Ottawa will make absolute fun of me because it's nothing here compared to there, but here in Toronto this week, it is absolutely bone-chillingly freezing cold. We've had a crap ton of snow. Our public transit system has slowed to a virtual halt. It's absolute garbage right now. There's snow everywhere. It's freezing cold. My phone is telling me it's minus 15 currently, but with wind chill, more like minus 30. So again, I know that all of my friends in Ottawa, that they're just rolling their eyes because it can't even begin to touch what winter is like in that city. But all of this to say that I am just frozen to the bone this week. I'm, I'm frozen and I'm sick of it and the snow and, and the commute and streetcars freezing to the rails. So I decided that with this week's episode, I wanted to at least imagine somewhere warmer. And so this episode 22 is once again, you can't be too surprised that this is the case, is once again about canine ghosts, dog ghosts, but specifically about the dog ghosts of the American South. So come with me. If you're already in the American South, then screw you. Your life is better than mine right now, or at least cozier, warmer than mine. But if you're like me and you're just sick of winter and you can't believe that there's about two months of it left, let's journey down to the American South where the temperature is warmer and the lifestyle is slower. People have delicious accents. Let's, let's take a trip with these stories of ghost dogs of the American South. Our first story takes us to somewhere much warmer than here, down to Charleston in South Carolina. And I wanted to talk to you about Pugin, about a ghost dog named Pugin, who is said to haunt a restaurant operational to this day in Charleston, known as Pugin's Porch. And I did also want to read to you the alliterative title from one of the websites that I'm using as a resource for this story. The website is called worldofangus.com, but the way they introduce this story is to say that Pugin the Pooch still perches on his porch. So I do invite you to say that five times fast. Pugin's Porch, like I said, is a modern restaurant in Charleston in South Carolina. It is also known pretty well unequivocally, as a very haunted location. So the building that is now occupied by the restaurant, Pugin's Porch, was built a hundred years before it ever became a restaurant. It's not entirely known who built it or why, but in the early 1900s, 
quite literally the year 1900, the house was owned and occupied by two sisters, Elizabeth and Zoe St. Armand. And by most accounts, from what we know about their lives, they were spinsters who lived together, but who never married. We're not entirely sure of their professions, but it was likely that one or both of them was at one time a teacher. So years later, they lived in that house, the building that now houses the restaurant. They lived there together in solitude. And years later, in 1945, Elizabeth passed away and left Zoe alone in this enormous house. Without her lifelong companion in the form of her sister, Zoe's mental health began to deteriorate. She was said to suffer from bouts of depression, and she was very lonely. We're not entirely sure why, but she did eventually move away from Charleston. And when she died, it was not in that home, not in Charleston at all. Many years later, a woman named Bobby Ball, who worked as a court reporter for the South Carolina State, bought the house once belonging to the St. Armand sisters, and she began this long task of remodeling it with the idea of turning it into a restaurant. So at this time, as she was remodeling this home, it look at, look at the pictures if you like. It's this beautiful Victorian residence. As she was renovating, this scruffy white dog began to show up on the house's porch. And some versions of this story claim that the dog was abandoned by the previous owners of the home, while other versions of the story claim that he was just kind of this neighborhood mutt who was known in the area. So he started to show up on the house's porch. He was friendly, his presence was innocuous, and so the dog was eventually adopted by Ball, and he was known in the neighborhood by the name of Pugin. So the restaurant finally opened, having been renovated from this Victorian residence. It finally opened in 1976, and when it did, Pugin was there on hand to greet the restaurant's first customers. So he loved to sit on the building's porch, sort of surveying the activity, the ins and outs of guests to the restaurant. He seemed to greet them as they entered, and he liked to beg at their tables for table scraps as well. And he became such a presence, was so beloved, a part of this restaurant's institution, that the restaurant was eventually named after him, Pugin's Porch. Pugin died in 1979, a few years later, of natural causes, but a picture of him still hangs on the wall. And he's buried in the restaurant's front yard where visitors can still pay their respects. There's this little white statue of him. His ears are standing straight up. His mouth is open in a smile, and his epitaph simply reads, R.I.P. Pugin, 1970 to 1979. So there are lots of stories of Pugin's porch being haunted. And one of the ghosts said to haunt the building is Pugin himself. According to some, people who eat at the restaurant and employees alike have looked out the window onto the front porch, his favorite spot during his life, and have claimed to still see a faithful Pugin sitting there, waiting for someone to come along and scratch his ears or feed him table scraps. Still others claim that they can feel the little dog in and around their 
legs and feet as they eat in the restaurant, clearly still looking for scraps and pieces of fallen food. Now, Pugin's Porch, like I said, is known as a haunted building, and not just because of Pugin himself. It's most well-known for a haunting by a woman known as the Lady in Black. And the restaurant has actually been named one of the most haunted restaurants in the world by the Travel Channel. So this woman, this female spirit, she's described as an older woman dressed in black. She's been seen by employees and customers alike, and also people staying across the street from the restaurant at the hotel there. Many people are convinced that the lady in black is the ghost of Zoe St. Armand. Even the owner, Bobby Ball, had a run-in with Zoe one night while she was trying to close up. She was trying to set the alarm for the building and was suddenly disturbed by heavy wooden stools being totally flipped over and large doors being slammed open. On another occasion, a chef was opening the restaurant early in the morning. He had made coffee and he'd left the cup sitting on the stairs as he went to the back door to, to open up to let in the grocers with that day's food delivery. And when he returned, his coffee cup was gone. He was confused. He wondered if he really did pour himself a cup. He decided to go pour another. But when he returned, he found his mug sitting right where he'd left it with a faint lipstick stain around the rim. So Zoe is thought to be a benign spirit, but the sight of her has been enough to send at least one person who encountered the lady in black in the bathroom running, screaming from the building. And to be honest, I don't really blame that customer. I did want to read the opening paragraph from another website that I used as a reference for this story, dreadcentral.com, which is a great website if you're just looking for like the history of haunted locations, sort of horror, film news, generally macabre news articles and blog posts. Great website. But I did want to just read the introductory paragraph to their article about Pugin's Porch, because in terms of the spirit of Zoe St. Armand, it just really paints such a lovely, sad picture of what her life must have been like and what it must be like for her to be sticking around to this day. There are people in her house. She doesn't know them, but they come in droves. They eat in her living room, cook in her kitchen, pay her no mind at all. After such a long life of lonely solitude, the air is thick with conversation and the scent of low country spices. Of course, she hasn't lived here or anywhere for a long time, and the house is no longer her home. But she continues to walk the floors and look out the windows, remembering a time that once was. I just thought that that was such an evocative picture of the lady in black. Pugin's ghost is a much more cheerful one. And if you are ever to visit Pugin's porch, it's recommended that you make reservations in advance. And it is also strongly recommended that you pay your respects to Pugin on your way out. This second story comes from South Carolina as well, but specifically from Newbury. And this is the story of the ghost hound of Goshen. Apparently, 
a large white dog haunts the Ebenezer Church Cemetery and an accompanying five-mile stretch of road that runs from Dubery to Goshen Hill in South Carolina. I don't know where that is, so don't ask me. But people have reported sightings of this white dog, this large white dog, for over 150 years. It's said that he'll suddenly appear alongside your car as you're driving in the area down this stretch of road, and that if you stop driving, he'll step in front of your car to lean back, throw back his head, and howl. There are two versions of the story of the Hound of Goshen, and the first is a sadder, gentler version. It tells of the Hound's master buried in the cemetery at Ebenezer Church, and that this master's dog refused to leave the grave of his master after he passed and died of starvation. That's not the first tale of that type that I've heard of. I've heard that story, versions of that story, across cultures again and again, these ever-loyal dogs. The second story is much more dramatic. So I'm going to read this to you from a series called Weird South Carolina. In a lonely area between the small communities of Maybitton and Cross Keys lies an area known as Goshen Hills, the home of the Hound of Goshen. The story goes that a traveling man passed through Goshen Hills sometime back in the early 1850s. He had a large white dog with him for company and protection. As he went from door to door selling his wares, a murder took place in the area. An angry mob formed and decided that, as he was the only outsider around, he must have been the killer. So despite the dog's best efforts to protect his master, he was dragged to a nearby tree and hanged by a lynch mob. The dog managed to bite a few people, but one man shot him with a rifle and the wounded dog ran off into the woods. After the crowd dispersed, leaving the body hanging in the tree, the dog was observed under his master, guarding the body and allowing no one near it. No one particularly wanted to bury the body or acknowledge it, as it quickly became obvious that it was someone else who had committed the murder. So weeks passed and the dog never left the rotting corpse. Finally, one morning, both the corpse and the dog had vanished. The locals sighed with relief, and they could now put the whole mistake behind them. Or so they thought. It wasn't too long before slaves in the area began reporting seeing a white spectral dog that would chase them down the road, sniffing them, then disappearing into the woods. No one believed them until a local physician, Dr. George Douglas, saw the hound in 1855 and started to document sightings. Another doctor, Jim Caulfield, reported seeing the ghost hound as well. Most people reported no harm, but persons reported to be part of the lynch mob were not so lucky. One of the men was driving a wagon with produce when the ghost hound attacked, spooking his horses and dumping all of the produce on the ground. The man fled with the hound snarling at his heels. Other people who had been part of the lynching reported horrible attacks by the white dog. One man's hand was crippled by a bite that nearly severed it across the palm. Another was almost drowned when the dog knocked him into a creek. 
and still another was riding as fast as his horse could run when the ghost hound bit him through his boot, causing an injury that caused him to walk with a limp for the rest of his life. So in time, the pattern became clear. The hound was bent on revenge. It was also reported that those who tried to fire on the dog would watch as the shots passed straight through him. So eventually everyone who had been present at the lynching had been punished in some manner, but the worst was reserved for the man who had shot the dog. He himself was never attacked, though he feared it his entire life. He never saw the white dog himself. However, his four-year-old son disappeared in the same area where the attacks took place. So sometime in the 1920s, the attacks stopped and tapered, and some say it's because the last of the lynch mob and their families had passed away. In 1936, a man named Barry Saunders reported being chased home by the ghost hound, but he ultimately came to no harm. In all those years since, there have been many accounts of people being chased by a large white dog when they dare to venture down the stretch of road considered to be its territory. The final story I'd like to share with you comes out of Gettysburg in southern Pennsylvania. And I know that Pennsylvania isn't considered to be the American South, but the general involved in this story was from Mississippi, and that's where his remains ultimately wound up. So I'm going to include this story in this episode. Please don't come at me. I know that Pennsylvania isn't in the southern United States. I know that much. So this story comes out of Gettysburg. Of course, this is one of the sites of the greatest battle of the Civil War in 1863. And this is considered to be an exceptionally haunted site to this day. So this story is concerning a residence at Gettysburg called Hummelbaugh House. And I'm reading this story from a source called prairieghosts.com. At Hummelbaugh House, the stories say that the cries of Confederate Brigadier General William Barksdale, which, as an aside, is a fantastic last name for this story, the cries of Confederate Brigadier General William Barksdale can still be heard on certain nights. Barksdale was wounded while leading a charge on Seminary Ridge and was brought to the Hummelbaugh House. According to an officer from the 148th Pennsylvania Volunteers, Barksdale was last seen lying in front of the house, and a young boy was giving him water with a spoon. The general continued to call for water, as though the boy did not exist, calling over and over and over again. In the years since, the legends say that the sound of Barksdale's voice crying out can still be heard. But that's not the only story connected to the house, or to Brigadier General Barksdale. In the days after the battle, when Barksdale's wife journeyed to Gettysburg to have her husband's remains exhumed and returned to their home in Mississippi, she was accompanied on her trip by the general's favorite hunting dog. As the old dog was led to his master's grave, he fell down onto the ground and began to howl, and no matter what Mrs. Barksdale did, she was unable to pull the animal away. All through the night, the faithful dog watched over the grave. 
The next day, Mrs. Barksdale again tried to lure him away, but he refused to budge, even though the general's remains had already been loaded into a wagon to begin the journey back to Mississippi. Finally, saddened by the dog's pitiful loyalty, Mrs. Barksdale left for home. For those who lived nearby, the dog became a familiar fixture during the days that followed. He would occasionally let out a heartbreaking howl that could be heard from some distance. Many locals came and tried to lead the dog away, offering him food, water, a good home. The dog refused all of their gestures and eventually died from hunger and thirst, stretched out over his master's burial place. Within a few years, a tale began to circulate that the animal spirit still lingered at the Hummelball farm. It has been said that on the night of July 2nd, the anniversary of Barksdale's death, an unearthly howl echoes into the night as the faithful hunting dog still grieves from a place beyond this world. Well, my intention was to warm myself up with these stories from the South, but as always with a good ghost story, I've been left feeling a little bit chilled. If you're feeling that way too, um, great. <laughs> That's what I try to do with this podcast. So, this brings us to the end of our exploration of dog ghosts of the American South. Thank you very much for joining me for this episode 22. If you follow me on social media, you might have seen that I'm really hoping to get some guests on this podcast. If you have a story, I know I've put out this call before, but if you have a story, any story, a friend of a friend, maybe it happened to, to you or to a coworker or to your boyfriend, a family member, if you have any story related to animals and the paranormal and you want to share it, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at afraidofthebarkpodcast at gmail.com. If you are a pet psychic or if you have some sort of supernatural animal topic that you want me to explore that you feel that you could tell better, I want you to come on the air. Well, on the air. It's a podcast. But you know what I mean. I want you to come and be my guest and tell me about it. If you have had a pet pass and you think that you still feel them in some way, I, I want I want you to come on the podcast and tell me about it. If you have anything to say on this topic, please, please, please send me an email at afraidofthebarkpodcast at gmail.com. I, I want to hear from you. I want to get some more voices on this podcast talking about these topics. And even if you don't have anything that you want to come and guest star and say on the air, Sorry, I'm using that expression again. Even if you don't have anything that you want to say as a guest on the podcast, you are, of course, welcome to reach out to me just to let me know what you think. If there's any topic that you'd like me to cover moving forward, your thoughts, your opinions, your likes, your dislikes, whatever you want to say, you can say it to me in a number of ways. So you can reach out via email, afraidofthebarkpodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast and follow the podcast page on Facebook at AYAOTB Podcast. On Instagram, we are Afraid of the Bark Podcast, and on Twitter, simply Afraid of the Bark. So those are all the ways in which you can like and follow podcast news and contact me and let me know what you think and just have a friendly chat with me because I think I'm pretty friendly and I love, 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 love meeting 
listeners of this podcast, if only virtually through social media. So just reach out to me about anything. I'd love to chat with you. And if you have something to say, if you want to say it for yourself as a guest on Are You Afraid of the Bark? I would love to have you. So that brings us to the end of this episode 22. Thank you very much for joining me, as always. I hope that you stay warm in the coming week. And as we come to the end of this episode, I have only one more thing to say to you, and that is simply that I hope that you have sweet dreams tonight. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.